Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 33 reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of blessing or greeting this may be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we have sung your praise and declared your works. And now, Lord, we come to your word asking that you would teach our hearts to listen and teach our ears to hear and teach our eyes to see the greatness of Christ that is prophesied here by the angel. What his greatness will be, what his throne will be, and what his kingdom will be. Father, help us to worship Christ more truly this morning as a result of your word. Please work among us and exalt your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us for any amount of time, uh, especially through the month of December, you will remember that we are going through the series of Advent, which is the term that we use for the coming of Jesus Christ. And although Christmas is over... We did dedicate our whole month to this concept of Advent. And the, this climactic piece of identity for the, for the Messiah is so fitting to look at for the end of the year. This is really the climax and the pinnacle of who the Messiah was and what he would do and what expectation he would fill. Again, we've looked at the things that he does for humanity. He pleases God. He cleanses us from sin. Right? He, he does many things on our behalf for God. But this morning we are looking at who the Messiah is. Not so much what he does, although who he is is inseparable from what he does. But the identity that he carried as the Messiah. The identity that he carried even as a baby born into this world. I would say that this, <clears throat> this aspect of his identity may be the most critical and foundational to our obedience of Jesus Christ and to our delight in him, our worship of him, our joy in him, and our hope for the future. I believe that this element of his identity is going to build into those things unlike any other aspect of the identity of Jesus Christ. To bring out your obedience to him, to draw out your delight in him, and to instill in you the greatest hope that you could have, not only for your future, but for the future of the world. I've also sort of subtitled this, A Word for Unstable Times. And the answer that we are getting is to the question, who will reign forever? Who will reign forever? A word for unstable times. If you do any following on social media, which I hope you don't, uh, but if you're like me, you do. It's sort of part of our uh, cultural zeitgeist, but I see a lot of anxiety on social media, like a lot of serious anxiety about our political climate. I mean, things are worse now in terms of people's outlook for the future than they even were in 2008 when the Great Recession hit. People don't seem to have the same ability to synthesize information and to make a clear vision for the future and a hope for the way forward. It, it just seems like chaos. It seems like people have no idea how to work with the realities that are going on in our political spheres, our economic spheres, the reality of, I mean, Greta Thunberg was our time person of the year who might be the most alarmist, out of control, um, chaotically organized person in terms of her view of the world that we've ever seen. 
And this is Time Magazine's person of the year. It's all doomsday, no hope. Things are going to go out of our control. And in fact, many politicians say that they already have, and basically the only hope is uh, to give all of your money to the government. That's the solution that's being put forward for us for our unstable times. And now I won't disagree with you that we are in politically, economically, and in other ways, unstable times. We certainly are. We live in a, a more and more divided culture. But we will not be able to navigate this, especially as we look to the year 2020, and I'm so excited about it. We won't be able to look forward with clear eyes and our chins up unless we understand this about the Messiah. We will sink into the same despair and chaos and, and, and frantic Uh, lip-flapping as the rest of our culture unless we get grounded in this reality of who is going to reign forever. If we don't know the answer to that question, we're no better off than our unsaved counterparts. And so this passage in in the book of Luke chapter 1 is going to give us three realities about this question of who will reign forever. The angel gives three things that we need to look out for in terms of who the Messiah is. Number one, that he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. Number two, that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And number three, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we look at his greatness and and, and where his greatness is rooted. We look at the the throne of his father David and what kind of authority it has. And then we look at the kingdom and its nature. We look at the kingdom that he will rule over. And so this declaration by the angel to this young girl, maybe 13, 14 years old, Mary, she is taking in this unbelievably arresting and captivating declaration about her yet unborn baby. I mean, she, she did not even have a bump yet. The, the angel was just saying, you will conceive. And this is a young girl sort of betrothed to this guy, Joseph, pledged to be married. And she is getting one of the most astoundingly profound declarations about the future of humanity that anyone has ever received. This young girl. So don't est- underestimate the mind and the heart of your children and their ability to understand the truth of God. She, the angel says to Mary, he will be great and be called the son of the most high. I find that interesting because the angel really here bypasses the greatness of his parents. The child is not going to be great because of who his mom and dad are, which is the way greatness happens today, right? Children are born into royal families today by virtue of who their parents are. In this declaration, the greatness is by virtue of who the baby is. And Mary and Joseph are remembered because of their child, not vice versa. So the child has his own greatness and his own destiny bound up in who he is, according to the angel, that he will be great. Now, Mary did go on to recognize that the nations would call her blessed. All generations would call her happy for receiving and delivering this promise of God. But it did not make her great in the same way that Christ was. Mary recognized that she was a humble servant of her Lord, uh, not um, a a deified saint. And so his greatness is, is inherent in and of himself, and it comes from his identity. It comes from his origin. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High is an unmistakable title for God, The Most High being the title that the the Jews would give God, their creator, Jehovah and Yahweh. And this son, this child would be called the son of God, the son of the Most High. It's not an accidental title. It's not a title that the disciples later tacked on to Jesus to make him significant. He was born as the son of the Most High. Now, especially in this first culture, this first century culture, sonship was the same thing as equality. Sons always did what their fathers did vocationally. They didn't have community colleges and correspondence courses. They trained in the way that their fathers worked. So a carpenter would train his son to become a carpenter. A lawyer would train to, for his son to become a lawyer, and etc., etc. 
when Jesus said that God was his father later in the scriptures, the Jews wanted to stone him and kill him because they knew that calling yourself the son of somebody gave you the same honor as that person. In fact, if you love your dad and if you identify with who he is and you appreciate his legacy, you're proud to say, I'm the son or daughter of blank. Likewise, if your dad was abusive or absentee or a drunk, you want to distance yourself from that identity. And so sonship is very important, especially to this this first century culture. So the angel says he will be equal. He will receive from his father the same vocation as the father. This baby would, would be after his father, the Lord God. Now, the amazing thing is that his, his divinity, the divinity of the Messiah, was not just that he was sort of this flowing, disembodied, godlike creature that sort of hovered around the world, right? He was born to a particular father and mother. He was born in a particular place. And according to the scriptures, he was born to fill a particular form. It's almost like his birth was poured into a mold which had already been set by the sovereignty of God. He wasn't born in some obscure place that no one had ever heard of into a a people group no one had ever heard of. And he sort of showed up on the scene saying, look, I'm God. I can do tricks. That's the view of Jesus that many people had, that he was sort of an obscure carpenter's son. And all of a sudden he wowed everybody by doing miracles. That's only half of the truth. Because before he was even born, the angel said to Mary, he will receive from the Lord the throne of his father, David. This Messiah was born into a very particular time in a very particular family for a very particular role. He had a a destiny and an inheritance which had already been set out by God and he simply walked by faith into and walked uh, by obedience into. And so we can't understand who Jesus is unless we first understand this idea of the throne of his father, David. And we looked at this last Lord's Day on Sunday. We remember the time where Samuel went before God and he said, you won't believe what these people are doing. They, they are rejecting me and my sons. Samuel was a prophet and his sons were judges. And Israel said, we no longer want judges. We want a king like the other nations. And God comforts Samuel by saying, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as their ruler. And then we also looked last week at Ezekiel 34, where God rectifies that and he he reverses that. And he says, I will once again rule over them. But in the meantime, Israel has rejected God's leadership over them. And they choose a man named Saul. Saul, we read, is the tallest among all men. He's the most handsome of all men. And they think that must make him a good king. We need a king who looks good. Ironically, nothing has changed in 3,000 years. We still pick our prime ministers the same way, especially in the 21st century. Most world leaders today have to be good looking or they have no hope of being of running for office. I mean, how shallow do human, do, do human beings look in terms of who they want to be their shepherd? We barely look beyond the surface of the skin, and Israel was no different. And so in choosing appearance and stature, they overlooked the reality that Saul had no faith in the living God. He had no faithfulness to God's law. He only followed God when it was convenient for him. He, and eventually God, rejected him. God deposed him from the throne and God said, I will provide for myself a king. And so God is so merciful, even to Israel who rejected God. He puts away this unfaithful king and he says, go to Bethlehem. There's a man there named Jesse. And one of his sons is the one that I have chosen to be king over Israel. That's in 1 Samuel 16. And he says, Go to Jesse's sons. And they bring out all Jesse's sons from the oldest who would naturally be chosen all the way down to the youngest. And none of them are chosen. Samuel is sitting there saying, these are not them. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, yeah, there's one more, but I I didn't even bother bringing him out because he's small. He's the youngest and he's a shepherd. 
He's not impressive. He's not what you would want for a king. Trust me, Samuel, you don't want this one. And he says, bring him out. And they call for this young boy named David, who's a shepherd. And God says, this is the one I've chosen for my king. This is the one that I will send to Israel to shepherd them. And so this this David becomes for Israel the symbol. And eventually he becomes king, although not right away. He first has to contend with the jealousy and rage of Saul. And he serves Saul faithfully. It's an amazing story. But David eventually becomes king. And although he has his terrible failures, and he does, he nonetheless repents and he stays true to the heart of the Lord. He shepherds God's people. He cares for God's law. He is zealous for God's holiness in a way that a good shepherd should be. And so this name David becomes a byword. It becomes the archetype. It becomes the mold in Israel. For anybody who follows the Lord, we're going to nickname him David. We're going to remember David. When we see a king doing the right thing, Israel remembers that was like David. He became almost legend in Israel as the good king. All kings are judged based on this guy, David, that man never would have chosen, but God had chosen. And so when God works through this David, he also makes promises to David. He not only says, I'm going to put you on the throne, but he says to David specifically, I'm going to make sure that your family always reigns. No matter what, no matter what challenges you face, no matter what battles you face, no matter what happens in terms of circumstance, I'm going to make sure your family is always reigning. Now, if you're a king, that's exactly what you want to hear. That's the one promise you want, that your family is going to reign until kingdom come. I wonder if that's a biblical expression. And so David receives these promises from God over and over. Remember, we looked at Ezekiel 34 last week. God promises through David that he will be a good shepherd to Israel. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, Ezekiel 34, 23. He also promises to David that he will always have a descendant. His line will never be broken. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that was speaking immediately about Solomon who built the temple. But ultimately, it's about the son of David, Jesus Christ, who would raise up a spiritual temple of living stones. That's a story for another day. But in this promise, God is saying to David, you will always have a descendant reigning on your throne. Now, again, David was the king of Israel, an earthly nation who had borders, who had a temple, who had a city. But in some way, God was promising an everlasting kingdom to be associated with this throne of David. He later repeated the same promise to Solomon, the son of David. As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, you will always have somebody from your bloodline who is over the house of Israel, who is reigning forever. God never made this promise to any other king. He said, there is one bloodline that will reign over my people forever. And God does not use this word haphazardly. He's not talking about when we say like, you know, love you forever, man. Oh, I'll love you forever, sweetie. God's talking about forever in the way God talks about forever. That is forever. Your bloodline will always reign over Israel. That was from 1 Kings 9.4 when God repeats that to Solomon. This is so critical, my friends. Christ was the heir to that throne. This is the throne that Christ was born to inherit. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Christ was unmistakably born into that bloodline, which Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting for this king. Who is the king who's going to take the throne and who's going to sit on it forever? 
Who is going to reign over us forever as a good shepherd who feeds us and cares for us and protects us? We are like sheep without a shepherd and we need our king to come. This was the cry of Israel when Jesus was born. In Luke chapter 2, verse 2, we read about Joseph, the, the natural father of Jesus. It says, Joseph went up from Galilee to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Jesus' earthly father, from that perspective, was of the house of David. You can read the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3. Christ, through the records that Israel kept, can be proven to be a direct descendant of King David himself. And in fact, you can trace the lineage right back up to Seth and Adam. A direct lineal line from Jesus right back to the first Adam. And so we need to recognize that this Christ is unmistakably the heir to the throne. There can be no other. There's no one else of whom it was spoken that that fits the prophecy and fits into the lineage. Now, an amazing thing that you need to recognize is when Jesus was born, there was nobody sitting on the throne of David. It was vacant at the time. The king over the Jews at the time was a client king set up by Rome whose name was Herod. Israel didn't have its own king sitting on its own throne as a sovereign nation. This is why, in particular, Israel was waiting for a king. And this is also the reason why Herod was so confronted when he heard that the title of this baby was King of the Jews. Herod thought, that's supposed to be my title. What's going to happen to me if this king is born? This is why you can understand Herod killed all those male babies. He wanted to make sure his throne was not threatened, but God never made a promise to Herod that his throne would always go on. So no matter what Herod did, he could not thwart the plan of God. He could not squash the promise of God that this throne, David's throne, would rule forever. One other interesting fact is that no matter who is born today, there can be no inheritor and no heir to the Davidic throne because the records that the Jews kept so meticulously and were stored in the temple of God, they were all destroyed in 70 AD. The temple was burned to the ground. Not not one stone was left on top of another as Jesus prophesied. And so there are no more family records. You could never prove that the Messiah who had come was after the line of David. That's a moment in history which has now passed and been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the identity of Jesus Christ is the heir of the Davidic throne. And this Davidic throne was not just any old throne. It was God's seat of power. It was God's representative on the earth. It was the one who reigned over his people who was faithful to him. And when Jesus was born, the angel said, He will sit on his father David's throne. He will be the one who rules God's people forever. Now, Jesus was a little bit different than David. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was born hundreds of years later. And so we need to ask, Christ was also crucified at the end of his life. We need to ask, what kind of authority does this throne carry? This is our second question. We need to understand what kind of authority does this Messiah have? As I said, that when, when his title was announced as king of Israel, Herod began to act in fear, right? He began to manipulate the wise men and say, come back and tell me where he is so that I may come worship. Well, what he was going to do was go try to assassinate this future king. And then when the wise men had tricked him, again, he spilled the blood of every male child under the age of two. The the innocent bloodshed at the hands of this power-hungry king is terrifying to think about. And yet Christ was spared through this dream when Joseph took the child to Egypt, fled to Egypt, and then returned after Herod had already died. And so what kind of throne, what kind of authority does this king have? What was, did Herod need to be afraid? Was Herod uh, acting in a way that would preserve his authority while Christ could reign at the same time? Like, what did the reign look like? Psalm 89 says, and we read this uh, this morning, You have said, this is a psalm, this is a song that Israel would sing. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. 
O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. When Christ was living and working with his disciples in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, when the seas were raging and the boat was almost flipping over and Jesus was literally asleep on a cushion and the disciples woke him up saying, don't you care about us? We're about to die. And then Jesus got up and rebuked the sea and the wind and it ceased. And the disciples asked one critical question. Who is this? Who is this who can calm the raging sea? Psalm 89 tells us, It is the Son of the Most High. He possesses the authority of His Father in heaven. He possesses the very authority and nature and character of God, the Father, the Creator. This is why when Christ came and He declared His kingdom was coming, He associated it with the power of the Creator by healing the blind, raising the dead, multiplying food, and calming the sea. So Christ's reign over the world was first depicted in physical terms. Christ's authority, the throne of of his father David, was not a throne for the church to say, this is private for us in our little building. God does not share his authority with anybody else. If Christ is reigning, it means he is ruler over all. He does not reign privately inside of our stained glass. Now, our church doesn't have stained glass, but the point might be made if you were sitting in an older church. Christ is not confined to some holy pictures on the wall. He rules and reigns in real time, in real space, in your world and in my world. He demonstrated that during his ministry, that he was master over the molecules that make up our bodies. Psalm 110 verses 1 to 2 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In other words, you don't even need to be afraid that your throne is established and your enemies still exist. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. This is the promise made from God to his son, Jesus Christ. That psalm interestingly begins, although it was written by David, says, The Lord said to my Lord. It sounds schizophrenic, but in the Hebrew, we can see two different names for Lord. The first one is Yahweh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all in caps. Said to my Lord, capital L, small O-R-D. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, King. I will make your enemies your footstool. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son who is the King, saying, I will make you great among the nations. And we recognize when God makes a promise, God does not break his promise. Hebrews chapter 1, I I always quote from Ephesians chapter chapter 1, but this gives a very similar idea, and it's a different passage, and I try to show us different areas in the scriptures that, that speak to the same realities. But Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 say, After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is after he died on the cross. So this is past tense. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Amazing. So the Son is in the same point called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And yet at the end it says, God, your God, has anointed you. We can see the Trinitarian identity of Christ and the Father here. He is both God and the Son of God. He is both God and calls the Father God. So Christ has inherited a name that is above every name, above even the angels. 
Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us of that, that there is no name that you can name today, tomorrow, or the next day which is greater than the name of Jesus Christ. That includes Donald Trump. That includes Vladimir Putin. That includes every principality that Satan could name. Christ is above them all. And he has inherited this after he died on the cross. This is a past reality for us, a past and present reality. His authority is established and his reign is advancing through history according to God's promise. Your throne will endure forever. That's what kind of authority this throne has. Our final question is what kind of kingdom does he rule? What kind of kingdom does he rule over? Not only is he in verse 33 in Luke chapter 1 here in our, in our original passage, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Luke's first point is that the kingdom is an eternal one. It's not like any of the kingdoms that you could name. The greatest dynasties in history have already passed in terms of our generation. We never lived to see the Greek dynasty or the Roman Empire. We haven't really even lived to see the British Empire. They once said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. They weren't talking about the day. They were talking, or the time. They were talking about the reality that the Brits, England, had so many territories in so many parts of the world that the sun was literally always shining on a British territory. England was once great across the face of the earth. That's how we have Hong Kong and the realities that exist down in, uh, in South Africa. And even Canada is a dominion of Britain. There have been great dynasties in our time. And in the times and in times past, yet they have all waned. They have all diminished. They have all given way to new powers and new nations. Even the United States of America. Can you imagine our world without the the military and political superpower that is the United States of America? Can, Can you imagine the world without it? Well, at one time, the United States of America did not exist. And at some time in the future, it is likely again that it will cease. That its time will set and new nations will emerge from those. And we can't imagine those because we live in 40 or 50 year time periods, right? We think, well, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're, you know, old enough or whatever, you can remember, you know, the first Trudeau prime minister, but I can't. So, so for me, my world is wrapped up in 10 year blocks. We can't imagine a kingdom that literally never ceases. In fact, it will not just exist in some form or another, but it will ever increase. Its power and influence will ever grow. What other kingdom can you name that's anything like that? Luke says that this kingdom will have no end. Jesus Christ is going to reign forever. The sun and moon will burn up and be cast away before Christ is set apart from his throne. There's an interesting story in John chapter 6, verse 15. After Jesus feeds the multitudes, they're really excited about him. They think he would make a great king. And he was a king. And yet there's this curious little passage where Jesus says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. If a mob from Smith Falls came to suddenly seize me and put me into power, I likely wouldn't run off into an alley and hide by myself. I would welcome all the power that man would give me, right? Wouldn't you? I would welcome all the power that man wants to give to me. Bring it on. I agree. I would make a good mayor. No offense, Sean Pankow. You know, do your thing. But if you wanted to make me mayor, I would take it. Even more so if I was chosen to be prime minister or an ambassador to the UN, I would take all the influence and power I could get. Yet when Christ perceived that their goal was to make him king, which he knew he was the king, he knew he was the heir to the throne, it makes no sense. He withdrew, he hid, he escaped their attention. And he went off by himself. And the reason is, is because if man enthrones a king, then man can dethrone a king. And Christ knew that his path to the throne was not by approval of this mob in Israel. 
His throne would be inherited and given to him by God the Father. It is God who gave him a name that is above every other. It's not us. We didn't give Jesus a great name. We have not enthroned Jesus here at Evergreen Chapel. He existed on the throne long before we came along, and he will be on the throne long after we are gone. We do not make Christ king. God made Christ king, and he recognized that. And so he rejected a throne that would be established by man, and he embraced only the throne that came from God. Otherwise, it, it could never be eternal. Only God can grant eternal authority and an eternal kingdom. So number one, the kingdom is eternal. Number two, the kingdom is global. The kingdom is global. I want to read to you a passage from a vision of our friend Daniel. Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament. He's a wonderful character. His book is, can be hard to find, but he's the first small prophet after all the big ones after uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Lamentations, we come to Daniel. And he gets a vision from God. He gets a vision from God. It's a global kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He doesn't really have the full picture. He's seeing a son of man. What is that? And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Daniel's vision. Doesn't know the name of Jesus Christ. Doesn't know about the Virgin Mary. Doesn't know about Bethlehem. Doesn't know about the wise men. Doesn't know any of that story. And he receives a vision which perfectly prophesies the reign of Jesus Christ. A kingdom that is comprised of people from every language, tribe, and tongue. The key quality distinction, the key thing that distinguishes Jesus' kingdom from every other kingdom, aside from it being eternal, is that it is global. Most kingdoms, they only encounter, they only encounter other nations when they are defending against attack. Especially in the Old Testament context. You only met another nation when you needed something, you needed protection, or when you were defending yourself from their attack. But this kingdom would attract worshipers. People would volunteer themselves to come into this kingdom, lay down their arms and say, we're only here to worship the king. Wouldn't you love to rule over a kingdom like that where it's just a flood of people coming in saying, I want to worship the king. I want to worship the king. I want to worship the king. Jesus reigns over a kingdom where people from every tribe, nation, language, tongue, dialect, square inch of the whole earth comes to this kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen among you. Listen to this. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your shining. Kings and nations and peoples will come into the kingdom that Christ establishes. Later, the disciple John would receive a revelation similar to Daniel's. And this time he saw it in brilliant clarity, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 7, John sees a great multitude from where? Every nation, tribe, language, and tongue before the throne, and they're all clothed in white. So Jesus' kingdom is comprised of every people group that could possibly be imagined. If you want to use today's slang, this is a major flex on Jesus' part. Okay, we do our best. In Canada, we love to talk about our strength is our diversity. We hear it all the time, right? Especially in the first uh, term of our prime minister. Our diversity is our strength. That, that's only true if, if, if your diversity is pushing towards one goal. But in Canada, what we see is people groups all fighting for their own rights, all fighting for their own vision of Canada, all fighting for their own territory. 
That's not strength. That's not unity. Nations today, especially older nations that, have, that are now comprised of many people groups, have a hard time holding together. They say the average lifespan of a democracy is 200 years. A democracy is one that says all the voices can contribute to the direction of this nation. They say the average lifespan of that is only 200 years. So the clock is ticking on the United States, and we are not far behind. It is hard to hold together a nation of many peoples, tribes, nations, languages, and tongues. It's hard to do it. But Christ says, watch me. I've got everybody. I've got one from every single group, and they're all here to worship me. None of them are pushing their own agenda. They're all around my throne worshiping me. Christ's kingdom is superior to every kingdom that has ever existed. It is, it is superior in its length. It is superior in its composition, in its diversity. The diversity of, of Christ's kingdom is not the strength of the kingdom. It's the proof of the strength of the king. Diversity proves the strength of the king. And so we see a global nation. The third thing we need to know about this kingdom is that it's an unstoppable nation. A nation that, that claims to be comprised by every single people group on the entire earth better have a good plan for, for achieving it, right? How are you going to get in and infiltrate every single nation with a, with a resurgent kingdom? How are you going to infiltrate every single kingdom by declaring another kingdom and have success through the gospel? When Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, Here's your job. All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is not a kingdom now just for Israel. This is a kingdom for the whole world and you need to go and speak the message. That reality puts every dictatorial leader on notice. Your kingdom is temporary. Your authority is given by God and it will be taken away by God. So if you're China, North Korea, or Iran, or any of the other nations that try to marginalize the church and try to squash out its influence and try to persecute its Christians, there is no way you can stop the kingdom. The harder they push, the more these churches flourish. Because Christ's kingdom is unstoppable. Our governments here in the West should take notice. You do not want to set yourself up against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, for his kingdom will never stop. You can be a part of it, or you can be rolled over by it. Jesus said, himself being the rock, you will either fall on it or be broken, or it will fall on you and it will crush you. There's only two ways to come to Jesus Christ. You submit or you be crushed. His kingdom is non-negotiable. He does not share his authority with any. It is an unstoppable kingdom. This is one of my favorite Psalms, chapter 2. If you start your reading week, uh, your reading plan, you'll get to this really quickly. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. In other words, we knew this was going to happen. The nations are plotting together. How can we stop the kingdom of God? Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Let us persecute the people of God. What does God think about this? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. As for me, I will make the nations your heritage. All of them. They're all yours. God said to Christ, they're all yours. Interestingly, Satan made that same offer, but again, Satan does not receive his crown. Jesus does not receive his crown from Satan. He receives it from God, and God promised him the nations. And uh, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth 
your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, kings, be wise. Justin Trudeau, listen. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the king with fear. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Worship Christ, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the king that we serve, my friends. Now, many confuse this because they don't see that rod of iron yet. They don't see the nations being shattered yet. And this is what disillusioned many. This is why Orthodox Jews still exist today, because they think the king was supposed to dash the nations, and crush opposition. Why hasn't he done it yet? Because what they did not recognize is that God would set up a day of grace, a day of patience, which allowed you to come to the king in peaceful terms, to repent and come to Christ. And the Bible tells us that when the fullness of Gentiles come in, in other words, when every tribe, tongue, nation, and peoples are represented in the kingdom, then God will turn himself back to his people his historic people, and he will revive natural bloodline Jews to Christ, and then will be the end. That's what our Bibles tell us about how the end is coming. First, Christ is going to inherit all the nations. Then he will come and crush rebellion. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you. Friends, as we look toward this new year, Take hold of Christ. His throne is established. He is at the right hand of God, now ruling and reigning until every enemy has been made his footstool. We learn in 1 Corinthians 15 that death will be the last enemy to be defeated. His kingdom is advancing. And so the reality is in the year 2020, you will experience blessing and graces that you cannot possibly deserve from God. God will give you and bless you in ways you could not possibly deserve. But by the same token, challenges and trials will come that you think you will not be able to handle. You will experience both in 2020. 2019 for me started out as I had my plan set. I knew what was going to go on. And God threw some serious challenges my way and my family's way. And it's hard to walk through those. It's hard to trust God. It's hard to trust in his sovereignty. It's easy to look at decisions and regret them or blame people or get into what ifs. But the reality is you will not walk through 2020 with sanity in mind if you do not see Christ on his throne reigning now. He is sovereign now. So take hold of him. Take hold of your faith. Own your faith. Examine yourself. Get yourself securely in the Christian faith and do not depart from it. I love this little follow-up in Daniel's vision. And this may be you going into 2020. Daniel said in, in 7.15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions in my head alarmed me. That may be your outlook in terms of God's plan for your life or what's happening in the world around us. And this is the response. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. The saints of the Most High. You are the inheritors of the kingdom of God. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole earth. The whole earth. That is God's promise to his people. So friends, grant willingly Christ's dominion over your life and your home. This is speaking straight to me this morning. Give Christ his rightful dominion in your life and in your home. Surrender yourself, your priorities, your activities. Surrender them all to Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean don't go about and do your business. You know, James says, if you want to go and make a profit in so-and-so a city, go ahead and do that. But just say, if the Lord wills. Surrender all of your life, all of who you are to Christ's 
lordship. Declare his lordship in the public sphere. Do not be afraid to speak on behalf of Christ. He has given you lips and a heart which is full of his spirit to do so. And anticipate the joy that is coming in the morning, the the joy and rejoicing of the kingdom. I read a great uh, quote on uh, Twitter the other day uh, from Doc Sandlin, who's the president for cultural leadership in California. He said, do not give in or resist the urge, resist the temptation to messianic politics. Politics is the result, not the engine of social change. In other words, when the church loses sight of the lordship of Christ, we tend to get our little dinky toys out and say, now we're going to be powerful. And we want to put people in places of power and say, that's how the kingdom of God is going to come. It's the other way around. Politics follows the culture. And so friends, the gospel mandate for us is the same today as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow. Raise your children in the faith. Share the gospel with your unsaved colleagues and see transformation like leaven. The kingdom advances like leaven, infecting one part of the dough to the next. It's quiet, it's invisible, and it moves consistently through the dough. That's how the kingdom of God advances. Do not put your hope in politics. Vote properly, vote in a Christian way, but do not put your hope in those things. Put your hope in the king of kings. So set your, Christ, set your sights on Jesus Christ this year in his glory. Do you want a couple suggestions? Know your Bible. Get one of those and read your Bible this year. Worship God. Submit your attitude to him and give him praise in trial and in blessing. Love your family. Love those God has given you to love. Work hard. Work hard to the glory of God. Pray always. Always pray. Just pray more this year. Pray, pray, pray. Go to church. Be with God's people. Do not forsake your brothers and sisters. They need you as much as you need them. Be, be social and share food. Share life with people. Create close relationships with God's people. Keep your home and your work area clean and orderly as a submission to Christ and his lordship. And it's funny how we can have such significant applications and we can have such what we would think of as trivial. But if Christ is Lord of all, then we should submit everything to his lordship and what will bring him most glory. And I just want to close with a few words from that revelation that John received about Christ. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and will the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And then over in verse, in in chapter 22, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Christ says again, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, my recompense, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have set my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star.